Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. Welcome back to the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, we're talking to Natasha Mascarenas about low-alcohol spirit maker House being forced to sell. Then we're joined by Carly Page to talk about a new, concerning, and well-orchestrated hack affecting Twilio and Cloudflare. Before we get into all that, here's what else is going on in tech news this week. SoftBank founder Masayoshi Sun is warning unicorn startups that for them, funding winter might extend longer than for others unless they back off their sky-high valuations. SoftBank Group, which includes SoftBank's Vision Funds, reported a quarterly loss of over $23 billion this week. In terms of its investment activities, it only put $600 million into startups in its most recent quarter, versus $20.6 billion during the same period last year. You can check out more on TC from Manish Singh. Coinbase reported earnings this week and lost $1.09 billion on the quarter in net income. The company's losses significantly exceeded analyst expectations. Coinbase is contending with the ongoing crypto winter and specifically with a steep decline in crypto trading volume, which has an outsized impact on Coinbase since its main source of revenue is transaction fees. The trading platform also announced it was laying off nearly 20% of its workforce in June. Read more on TC from Jacqueline Melanick. Facebook owner Meta is once again facing significant public criticism, this time for providing a Nebraska teenager's Facebook Messenger chat history to police. The messages were used to prosecute the 17-year-old girl for alleged crimes related to abortion. In a statement, Meta contends it didn't fight police on the warrant because it did not mention abortion anywhere in its text. Meanwhile, on Friday, Meta announced that it would be extending automatic end-to-end encryption testing to individual chats for users on Messenger, a move that seems intentionally timed to defray some of the criticism it's getting. For more, read Devin Coldaway's story on TechCrunch. First up, Natasha Mascarenas is back again to talk about House, a VC-backed aperitif startup that is being forced to sell after a Series A fell through. Hey, Natasha, how's it going? Going great. Back on the TechCrunch podcast so soon. That's right. Oh, well, we love to have you back as much as possible. That's the motto of the show, actually. Having Natasha on the show as much as possible is the tagline. Uh, Do you like my uh, comparison between this and the A1 of the newspaper section? I feel like that is what this is. And for our Gen Z listeners, they might not know what that is, but there used to be a physical page (laughs) that was the front of the newspaper, as we used to call it. It was the dream to get on. And so it's a dream to be back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you really wanted to be on that. Yeah. And that's that's what this is. Totally. I accept that praise and thank you for it. So we've got big news this week from House, which was, I remember when it came out at the time it was hot 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 it was it was very buzzy and for quite a while afterwards you know very buzzy and do you want to give a kind of a synopsis of what it is and then what happened this week yeah i mean honestly it was like my go-to order for anyone who got engaged because it's just this gorgeously packaged aperitif and the whole premise when it launched and it still is is that it was going to be like a lower alcohol by volume abv spirit that was all natural ingredients and they have like pretty cool flavors that are based around citrus, spice, and flowers. And so it was just this beautiful package. We can't show it via voice, but you should check out. Just describe it (laughs) perfectly in words. It's one of those like alcohol (laughs) bottles that you actually want to have on your bar cart. And that's what the vibe was. (laughs) Came out at a time when I think they really caught the wave of people looking around for less boozy alternatives to traditional spirits, right? Because cocktails are really popular, but cocktails are quite boozy. A lot of my preferred cocktails are like mix three alcohols together and then you have a new alcohol, right? Like it's pretty high percentage, but they were giving an option that was 
just around wine, basically, or like a bit over wine. Like you said, like an aperitif or a digestif. Yeah, right? yeah. A little bit over wine is exactly it. It's more than a wine and less than a hard liquor. To me, it, in my head, it kind of, I don't know if this is true, but it came out around the time when White Claws were also like on That's the right. rise. And so yeah. I actually, I think the reason I liked it was it was stronger than a White Claw. So I guess a little bit counterintuitive. I liked that it was a stronger, <laughs> low alcohol alternative. <laughs> Consumers are no, great. No, that's good. They got both. They got they got the people that were looking for more than your five percent seltzer and less than your you know forty percent whiskey yes, or whatever, right? Exactly. Yeah. A cash a cash sip. And they also rode the DTC wave, the direct to consumer wave, right? Like that was the other big deal was that you ordered it directly from them and then it showed up at your house. So. What happened, though, this week to this company? So news came out. So their CEO and co-founder, Helena Price-Hambricht, she announced that house is up for sale. Their Series A ended up falling through last minute. And the company had raised up to $7 million through rolling safe notes, about $5 million in debt financing, and was kind of spending ahead of their skis, as she admits when I chatted with her, because they had this Series A incoming. The lead investor, Constellation, ended up pulling mm. out, just saying that it was about timing. And now the company's going through an ABC process, which is kind of just like an expedited, self-chosen bankruptcy process where they sell the company as is or up for parts. Right. Yeah. So the Constellation brands we should mention would have been essentially a strategic investor because they were they're a maker of many beverages, alcoholic beverages. They own a lot of sub brands, including Corona, Modelo, a lot of other ones. Right. So that is not typically the type of investor that you expect, I think, to do a last minute about face. But I don't know. Did you talk to her about kind of like how that happened what it felt like and what like was it where they just sort of gobsmacked and left kind of like, what do we do now? Stunned and dazed? Yeah. I mean, she started off the interview by saying that there's no villain in this story. And, okay. and so I think that somehow she doesn't have anything to say, at least on the record or in general, in my conversation with her about any negative energy towards this brand, I think like, of course, she would not have spent the same way as no founder would have if they thought that there was a chance that a series A was going to fall through. Yeah. But I think what complicates this a little bit is like a traditional VC, I think a little bit about them caring about reputation and not wanting to lose kind of trust of early stage founders. Helena's a True. pretty prominent founder. And so I think of like the classic VC maybe being a little bit more scared to drop out of a series A last minute, but, but this was a strategic partner, not as kind of involved with like the politics of early stage. And that's, this is just me just riffing, but no, I, I wonder if point. that's part of the reason. Obviously VCs couldn't invest in house because of vice clauses. A lot of yeah. them couldn't. So that kind of took out that chunk of maybe a more thoughtful or politics oriented VC from ever being on that cap table in a meaningful way. Yeah. So just a couple things to unpack there for our listeners who might not be so into the inner workings of like the venture world, like the vice clauses would be, so typically when venture capitalists go out and raise money, they have to raise from LPs, so limited partners who provide them, you know, the funds that they then go invest. And a lot of these people have clauses on those funds that say, okay, you can have this money, but there are a few conditions. Just like it can never go into companies that do X, Y, Z. And a pretty typical one is a vice clause, which usually means you can't invest in any porn companies. You can't invest in any booze companies. You can't invest in any maybe narcotics companies or stuff like that. Right. So it all depends on the individual LP, but it is a very typical provision. 
And so that can really kind of like hamstring companies like House who need to go maybe to individual investors and angels, which is kind of what they did, right? And then also potentially strategic partners like this constellation. And then on the other side, you're absolutely right, Natasha, that like there's no real reputational risk for constellation brands. It's not going to be like, oh, well, you know, the next food or drink company will go, well, I don't trust your money because of this. I mean, they might, but it's so it's such a rarity and yeah. they kind of don't care, right? It's not a big deal to them if that happens to them. And it's not like on the other side, the public's going to go like, hey, we heard you backed out of your house deal. I'm not going to drink Corona anymore, right? Like that's not going to happen either. Yeah, so. I mean, the plot thickens even further because some, so so Sheila Minot, a venture capitalist, responded on Twitter to the story and was saying how Constellation basically got this company to the end of their runway, promising them this Series A. Now yeah. House is up for sale and Constellation, as well as a lot of people that sit in the Constellation world, universe, some would say, <laughs> are probably wanting to buy house. And so there right. is a world where Constellation is going to buy house now, but for much cheaper than a 10 million Series A. And, and that to me is also kind of like this, damn, is this how business works? I guess it is. Like, why not get this yeah. company to a much cheaper spot? Now, that would be very shrewd, right? Exactly. Ooh. To sort of say, to dangle this thing and then have someone overextend themselves, and then go, guess what, though? We're here to rescue you just in a different way yeah. than before. And one that is cheaper for involved. Now, what's interesting, I don't want to get too conspiracy yeah, yeah, yeah. here <laughs> and I don't want to impugn anyone, but like it is interesting that when you interviewed Helena, she didn't say anything bad about this company because it does lend you to imagine there's probably still some kind of relationship and that she doesn't want to endanger, right? And like maybe that is a discussed option. So it's already in negotiations or some process. I don't know. She probably would not mention that if that was the case, but it's a possible outcome from this, right? Especially since they're now just immediately like, oh, by the way, we're up for sale, right? Like you can see that being backhouse dealt. Yeah, for sure. Totally. That's a great point. I think a lot of like the DTC startups or people that have been following the DTC startup world are probably now realizing like for house, like the strategic partner was like their next bout of distribution and winning distribution because they can't sell on Amazon as an alcohol brand. And so I wonder now if this like either sours or just like puts a more clear light on what it is to go with like a partner like this. For sure. Yeah. And it, it is interesting too, because they were, yeah, they were early in this D2C thing, but it also is very difficult for them to continue in that mode because of the constraints on alcohol delivery, right? Like if you want certain specific geographic expansion, you can't, you just cannot do that. You can't operate in that way because there are entire markets that you will not be able to access. I'm not sure about this because I'm not American, but I think it's even state by state. And definitely in Canada, you would encounter major, major hurdles when it came to like, oh, I want to deliver this directly to people's houses. Wait, the yeah. would be like, you can't, no, you can't do that. Isn't right? Canada so. like, I mean, yeah, I feel like American DTC companies can't sell anything to Canada, right? Like a lot of them can't. The, well, that is a separate yeah, issue. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, I was but, like, oh, damn, I'm thinking about one of my friends who has to come to New York in order to try her DTC products over yeah. and Trader Joe's. So <laughs> there's a taxation issue for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it is, I mean, it's interesting because I think, you know, some people would look at this and say like, is this really the only option? Like, couldn't they entertain some other path? Couldn't they just kind of scale back operations and continue to operate as a traditional goods brand, like manufactured goods brand, right? Or food and beverage brand. But, you know, why was that not an option on the table for them? I think it's kind of like the art of venture capital again, where they told me that like they crossed 10 million in revenue, which is a huge milestone for D2C companies. You know, it's a huge milestone for any company, but especially D2C yeah. companies that are bottlenecked on distribution. And I said, why not use that cash flow to just 
fund the business. And I knew I was oversimplifying a little bit. And, and she basically said if she was going to do that, she would have had to make that decision a year ago because it would have changed dramatically the way they spend and prioritize product. And at their height last year, there were 30 people and now there's only five people left at the company. So I definitely think that Wow. It was kind of like a decision that's harder to make. I don't think they can revert back because of how much they maybe they probably spent over or, you know, the, now they need to prioritize return for their investors too. They have, they yeah, raise absolutely. Time. Yeah. I mean, that's probably a big part of the conversation, right? You never know those either about investors who come and say like, you know, this is great. You had a great run, but we we kind of need the thing. We need the money back right now. And, and it's the time to shut it down. Like you, they would deliver it in a different way. They deliver it like the best thing for all of us. Is it, But the real reason is like, oh, well, we're going to cut our losses on this one because we're not going to get the big return, but we want something back. Right. Yeah. Now, it's interesting with this one because Helena had a lot of profile like pr- prior to this company and then still maintains a lot of profile as well. So what do you think the impact of that is on something like this? Like, do you think that changes the way this is received and the way that it's kind of reported on? Or, you know, if it, if House was run by somebody else who didn't have that kind of cult of personality around them, do you think we would still be talking about it now? Or do you think this would have kind of flown under the radar? I think, as you alluded to in the beginning of this chat, like D2C companies, venture, like that intersection is always kind of over the past few years, at least, has not been the strongest. And so I imagine the reception to something like this, people weren't ready to dunk on it the way that they were let's say a no. fintech that overspent without yeah. naming names. And, and, <laughs> and so I think like, well, for one, I think that goes in a favor, right? For when a startup goes up for sale, like if you kind of expect this company to be struggling or any company in the sector to be struggling, you're going to be a little more empathetic. As for Helena, I asked her like, what's your next startup? And she said yeah. that she's like, definitely not even kind of thinking about it right now and, and wants to process. Mm. But I totally think like, as you can see on Twitter, people responding and investors even responding, like investors in-house that responded to her Twitter thread, will see this bodes true, but they've all said that they want to like a lot of them have said that they want to back her next startup. So I think when someone like this shuts down their business, I think this is potentially going to be the start of her next thing too. I think it's also the nature of the business, right? Like people still typically think of fintech businesses as like, okay, you're trying to get money on money. Like you're just trying to multiply money basically, right? Whereas if it's a goods business, it's like you tried to make something that people enjoyed and it's really hard to kind of vilify that a lot of times, right? So if we could get into a whole other discussion about when you're in the vice category specifically yeah. and what that means, because yeah. that can be more difficult. But, you know, a light ABV booze is hardly, you know, like it's not, yeah. <laughs> it's not the worst vice <laughs> out there. No, not at all. I think she made a really great decision from the start. Like the reason House was so successful was because of her branding and this loophole where they could deliver alcohol. Like they made a lot of really smart decisions early on. I just think that venture clearly was not the right way and yeah. always easy to understand in retrospect. Do you think we're going to see, like, have you still been seeing D2C VC backed companies? I feel like I it's rare now. <laughs> no, I haven't. And this was brought into sharp relief for me recently when former employer of mine, Harley Finkelstein, who is the I think president now of Shopify, I forget what his official title is, but he was tweeting about how great DCC is, which he usually does. And then someone, (laughs) another ex-Shopify person fired back at him. Oh, all those brands you named are over five years old. Can you name one recently from within the last five years? And there was crickets, right? And that to me is the state of DTC right now, especially when it comes to big name blockbuster VC backed companies. I think it had a moment where people thought this is maybe going to be the thing that's going to happen. Yeah. And because of a number of factors, but I think mostly just the slope and the inclination of the growth of e-commerce is much more linear than it is exponential. Like that's not the future for any 
VC is not the path for any of these DTC brands, right? Yeah. But. We're going to have a Geffen from Couple of Coffee at Disrupt. Oh, okay. And, and it's all about building VC networks. So I'm curious to see what they say about their choices to get. I think they raised a pre-seed, but I don't know if they've raised since. And so I'm excited to talk to her about it. Exciting. And good tease for our listeners. Yeah. That's Disrupt. It's coming up in October 18th to 20th. And you can still get tickets. Join us in San Francisco and learn about that. So thanks so much, Natasha. Thanks, Daryl. Next, we talked to Carly Page about a sophisticated phishing campaign that targeted Twilio and other internet companies. Hi, Carly. How's it going? Hi, really good. Thank you. How are you? Great. Great to have you on the podcast for the first time, but I'm sure not the last. Yeah. Yeah. Very excited. Big news this week. There's always big security news, it seems like, but this week in particular, the big news was this Twilio hack. And Twilio is something maybe not everyone is familiar with, but it's omnipresent almost. Like tons and tons of people use it. And it's essentially just a SMS API, I guess is the simplest way to put it. I don't know if that's too simple. Yeah. SMS phone, that kind of thing. It lets companies build. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, so you might not be aware of it, but if you get, say, I don't know, like a two-factor authentication or something, the chances are that it's running on Twilio services, for example. So what happened this Mm -hmm. week with Twilio, Carly? So... Twilio put out a blog earlier this week in which it confirmed that hackers were able to access customer data after a successful SMS phishing campaign. So this is where hackers will send you a text message sort of purporting to be from your IT department saying that your password has expired or your schedule has changed. And in the case of Twilio, these texts were really kind of legitimate looking. Mm. It was quite a sophisticated campaign. So these messages were sent to employees. We don't know how many exactly, but they contained keywords such as Okta and SSO for single sign-on. And they looked they looked really real. Mm. So unsurprisingly, Twilio confirmed that multiple employees did fall for this scam. They did click through to the link. And when they did this, they essentially went to a, a site that was hosted by the attacker And this enabled the attacker to essentially access Twilio's systems, Mm. which isn't great. (laughs) Um, And yeah, once into the systems, they were also able to access customer data as well, which again, not great. No, not great at all. So the weak point is humans, right? Because it was the humans that, (laughs) that fell for the text. But to their credit, like you said, these were very legitimate looking. And Okta and SSO, if anybody listening, I'm sure, like a lot of people work for larger enterprises and that's what they use. I mean, larger, smaller businesses of all sides use those things for uh, yeah. authentication, right? So you can understand how people would be fooled. And I know in your post, you said they know that 125 of their customers were impacted. Is that right? Yes. So these were figures they released today, actually. Mm which is incredibly helpful. So yeah, they're saying 125 customers had limited data access, but they are not saying what that data is. Right. So in terms of the sort of scope of this breach and the potential damage it could cause, we're still a bit in the dark on that. But yeah, 125, not an insignificant number of customers. No, especially when we think those customers could be enterprises with tens of thousands of employees and you know, hundreds of thousands yeah. of customers, potentially. We don't know. Potentially, yeah. Twilio has some really huge customers. Yeah. It has... Facebook, Reddit, Uber. I mean, pretty much, like you said, everyone that uses this kind of technology is probably interacting with Twilio in some way. And interestingly as well, um, Cloudflare came out this week. Cloudflare, obviously, a very security-focused company. And they've said, they haven't said they were hit by the same attack, but they basically have. They've said they were hit with an attack that shared all the characteristics of the one that hit Twilio. But 
they did a really, really good job of mitigating it and no data was stolen as a result. So yeah, they found really good blogs sort of detailing a bit more about the hack and how they prevented it. Mm. But yeah, they've come out of it okay. So for that, was it the same approach, like a sort of a social engineering approach and like their employees just didn't fall for it essentially? Is that what happened? Their employees did fall for it. Well, three of their employees did fall for it, interestingly. But they use hardware authentication keys to access any of their internal applications. So the hackers obviously didn't have access to those, so couldn't really get beyond the initial phishing attempt. So yeah, it shows that works. Yeah, this is a nice sample case of like, (laughs) here are the measures and here's what it's going to prevent and here's what it's not. Absolutely. So when it comes to the attackers, what do we know about that? Do we know much about who it might be or are there suspects? Is there obviously there's an ongoing investigation, but what do you know about that? Yeah, there is investigations ongoing. Twilio is remaining quite tight-lipped on this. Even Cloudflare, who have done quite a detailed analysis of this attack, aren't saying much. However, it does seem a bit more advanced than your typical SMS phishing campaign. It seems that they knew that Twilio used Otka, for example, for identity management. And they've also, impressively, to be honest, done a really good job of matching these employees' names with their phone number. Mm. It's completely unclear how they're doing this right now, but it is quite a sophisticated method to use. And this enabled them to make the text really hyper-personalized, which in turn (laughs) meant more people clicked on them. So yeah, in terms of that identity, we don't know anything yet. But it's clearly a group with resources, I would say. It's not just one lone hacker sending these messages. It's somebody that knows what they're doing. Right. And if it comes out that it was as it looks to be now, probably the same actors behind this and the Cloudflare one, that's a degree of concerted effort that also indicates, okay, this is very, very organized and very high level. Absolutely. Absolutely. As we we probably know, I I don't think it will be limited to Twilio and Cloudflare. Over the next few days, I think we'll probably start to hear about more, especially if those companies ended up with user data being compromised, because they're going to have to come out and fess up to that. But yeah, it seems like quite a broad, widespread campaign. A lot of effort has gone into this A lot of resources have gone into this. It's interesting. Hopefully we will find out more in the coming days. I'm sure we will. I do want to ask about, you know, what actions these companies will take. Like, as you mentioned, Cloudflare published quite the extensive retro, I suppose, or whatever you would call it at this point. But then Mm -hmm. has Twilio indicated what they will do? We talked about hardware keys. Have they given any indication that they might move towards something like that? Or are they working right now on investigation primarily? Yeah, I mean, they said they are stepping up their training efforts. So I assume that means kind of educating their employees how to better spot these phishing messages. And they have sort of vaguely said they're also stepping up their security mechanisms. They haven't said whether that's hardware keys, although from Cloudflare's point of view, that would probably be a great idea. But yeah, I think these texts, are they're convincing. People are going to click on them. I think prevention is probably the number one thing for these companies being targeted. They need to let employees just, we're not going to text you this kind of yeah. thing. Don't click on anything that comes through. We will through. never send you this unprompted. We, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, I think that will be the kind of number one thing they tackle. And then, yeah, they're remaining quite tight-lipped on what other measures they are taking. Yeah. yeah. We shall see. Well, understandably too, right? Like they wouldn't want to just outline exactly because then you're like, here's exactly the threat model that you have to deal <laughs> yeah. with or the security model. Right? Exactly. They would find ways to work around it, I'm sure. So yeah. 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 How big of a challenge is it? I mean, the education piece seems like such a high priority for so many companies these days, but obviously people are going to great lengths. And I will say, 
I'll share this and I think we can keep this in the episode, but like internally we do very highly produced mandatory training videos. And honestly, I have commented about the budget of them because they look like almost Hollywood (laughs) quality productions because they're really like, we need to keep you entertained. So you pay attention to this video because people don't. Right. But what else are companies doing? Like, have you seen increased sophistication from people trying to make sure that their employees know these things and follow these rules? Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't give you an example. And I have been subject to the same videos over the past <laughs> 10 years. I know exactly what you're talking about. But I do think these videos kind of need to advance with the sophistication of the hackers. Like, yeah. this yeah. wasn't a text from a delivery company asking you to pay some money to get your delivery redelivered or whatever. This was really, right. really sophisticated. It has actual consequences. So... Yeah, I think they do need to step it up. I mean, I I don't exactly know the best way they should do that. But it is important that every employee in an organization is aware of this because it only takes one. In the case of Cloudflare, it was who I would imagine offers some pretty great security training. Only three employees fell for it. So they're clearly doing something right with their training programs. But if one of those three has all the keys to the kingdom, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You need to make everybody pay attention to this at the end of the day. Yeah. We've all been hit by these text messages. We've probably all opened them at some point. So yeah, everybody just needs to know to sort of be on alert for this kind of thing. Like I said, I think we will hear about more companies being hit. And Twilio actually said today, like it's investigating this, but these hackers are still launching these attacks they're still sending messages to their employees so it's ongoing yeah yeah even now they've put out this blog and kind of made it public like these hackers aren't giving up that's brazen to just be like so brazen (laughs) yeah (laughs) so my suggestion is i have a plan i'm going to just send texts to people at random who work at TechCrunch, and it will include a link and then i don't know what i'll put maybe i'll just rickroll people but I'm going to I'm going to try to get them and then I'll check, you know, how many and I'll send out a security report. So, well, you know now, so you won't fall for this. But luckily no one else in TechCrunch listens to this podcast. So I think it'll work pretty well. I mean, it could work. It's just about getting people to pay attention, isn't it? Which is the hardest thing to do with yeah. this kind of stuff. So go for it. Absolutely. I will help. All right. Well, thanks so much, Carly. It's been great talking to you. And I appreciate you breaking down the story for us. Awesome. Thank you for having me. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Melissa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And remember to check out all the stories we talked about in this episode on TechCrunch.com. Be sure to use our TC Plus promo code, TC Podcast, all one word, to get 20% off on both annual and two-year terms. And be sure to check out all the other TC Podcasts, Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. See you next week.